This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Lin Shanjiang. Today, I'm so delighted to have Professor Carlos Rojas with us here on air. Carlos, would you like to say hi to the listeners? Hi, listeners. Carlos Rojas is Professor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Duke University. His research focuses on modern Chinese literature and culture, as well as gender, sexuality, and feminist studies. As a scholar, he has published numerous monographs, articles, and edited volumes, including The Naked Gaze, Reflections on Chinese Modernity, The Great War, A Cultural History, Homesickness, Culture, Contagion, and National Transformation in Modern China, as well as Imagining Communities, Reading Contemporary China Against the Grain, that is co-edited with Mei Hua Song. He's the Associate Editor of Prism, Theory, and Modern Chinese Literature. What we will focus on today is his identity as a literary translator. He has translated several renowned authors in the Chinese-speaking world, including Yan Lianke, Yu Hua, Jia Pinghua, and En King Chu, or Huang Jingshu, into English. Among all these literary translations, Carlos has translated about 10 books written by Yan Lianke, which is really amazing, including novels, short stories, novellas, and essay collections. They are... Lenin's Kisses in 2012, Shou Huo, The Four Brooks in 2015, Si Maro in 2016, Pa Lo Tian Ge, The Explosion Chronicles, a novel in 2017, Jia Lie Zhi, The Years, Months, Days, Two Novellas in 2017, Nian Yue Ri, The Day the Sun Died in 2018, Ri Xi, Three Brothers, Memories of My Family in 2020, Wo Yu Fu Bei, Heart Like Water in 2021, Discovering Fiction in 2022, which just came out, and then there's a forthcoming one, Heart Suture in 2023, Xinjing. So before we go into the discussion of translation, let me offer a short introduction of the author Yan Lianke. He's one of the most famous and prolific authors in China. He's the winner of the Newman Prize for Chinese Literature and Franz Kafka Prize and a two-time finalist for the Man Booker International Prize. He teaches at Renmin University in Beijing and the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. His works have been translated into more than 30 languages, including English, French, German, Spanish, Italian, Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, Czech, Hungarian, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Mongolian, and Portuguese. So now we'll start our interview, and we'll start from the reading experience of Yan Lianke. So how do you discover Yan Lianke? How do you describe the experience reading his works? Is there any difference reading his fiction vis-a-vis his essays? 
Yeah, hi, Ling-Chan. Thanks for um, having me and thanks for these questions. With regard to your first question, how did I discover Yin Co? I'm not sure I'd use the word discover here. I mean, I work on Chinese, modern and contemporary Chinese literature. And I mean, I guess there was the first time that I read or heard about anyone, but I don't think of it as discovering. I, mean, I didn't discover Mao Dun or, or Lu Xun or Dingling or Yuhua or Su Tong or Japinghua or anyone. But what I guess I would say that, um, I mean, Yan Ke has been writing since, publishing fiction since the late 70s. But during the, unlike some of his contemporaries like uh, Su Tong, Yuhua and others, he didn't receive as much attention internationally or even nationally for that matter in the 80s and um, early 90s. And he was writing mostly military fiction. And then it was really in the late 90s, I would say, with Zhu Guanlian in 1998, that his fiction starts taking a a shift to into the form that he's currently best known today, um, the sort of socially conscious, formally experimental works. And 1998 also happens to be when I was in grad school. So his literature was starting to attract sort of broader interest precisely during the period where when I was when I was doing my finishing my doctoral studies. And then your other two questions, how do I describe my experience reading his works? Is there any difference between reading his fiction and his essays? I mean, I'm not sure how I would describe my experience reading his works. I, I, I read them, you know, both as a reader and also, you know, I, I, I work on a lot of his fiction as part of my scholarly work. And there's often, you know, a lot of overlap between the two. For in terms of how to how any difference in reading his fiction versus his essays, I mean, I, I've heard him talk a lot about his fiction and his essays resemble and in many cases are versions of his discussions of his fiction or his reading experience. So so there's actually kind of also a lot of continuity between the fiction itself and then the the larger paratext, which is his his lectures, his talks, and his essays about or surrounding his fiction. Yeah, I think we'll talk more about that when we come to the specific works like Heart Like Water and Discovering Fiction. But now let's come to our second set of questions. So why do you want to translate his works? Why do you start with Lenin's Kisses, Shouhuo? So before that, there were actually English translations already of Yan Lianke, Surf the People, and Dream of Ding Village. So what motivates you to continue translating his works? Why did I translate Lennon's Kisses? Um, yeah. Because I was asked to. Um, oh. <laughs> so he he actually had a, a contract, a three book book contract with his English language publishers. He has um, he's been working with the same publishers in Britain and, and the U.S. and other English language language re- regions um, from the very beginning. So he had three a three book contract. He had one translator for sort of the people. He had a different translator for Dream and Ding Village. For various reasons, they either because the translators were not available or because the publisher didn't want to go back to those translators, and it's over a combination of the two reasons. They needed another translator for the third book under contract, Lens Kisses. I was recommended to him by a mutual friend. At the time, I was already very interested in his work. I was actually working on Dream of Ding Village for my dissertation and my first book before it was translated. And so I agreed and then translated Lennon's Kisses. It did well. We decided it was a, a sort of a, I think a productive experience. I mean, you know, sort of relationship between the author, translator and the publisher seemed to work well. And so they kind of kept coming back to me. 
So how would you describe your relationship with the author and also the publisher as a translator? Well, with the author, we hadn't met in person before I started doing Lennon's Kisses. And then we had several email exchanges. And then I think I, I met him in China once or twice, either while I was doing the translation or, or shortly after. And then I invited him to, to the US when the book came out and organized the sort of a, a large lecture tour for him. But no, I, I consider him a friend. I mean, we, 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 we now know each other quite well. We're in regular contact. I mean, I haven't seen him in person for, I guess, three years now because of the pandemic, but we're still in, in regular contact. For the press, the press has been really fabulous. They're very conscientious, uh, very careful, very supportive. Um, I've actually gone through, I've been working with, um, on the U.S. side, two separate editors. I had one editor who was worked with me for most of the first books up through Three Brothers and Hard Like Water. And then she left the press. I'm not sure exactly why and was replaced by the current editor that I've been working with for the with the past three books. But they were they were both fabulous. They were, they were super knowledgeable and conscientious. And then I also get good feedback from the British editors. And then the I think I've had the same copy editor for most or all of the books as well. And they're all really, really good. Great. So if we come to your translating process, how would you describe your most enjoyable moments of translating Yelenka's works? Well, it's always nice to finish a project. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess that's the, I mean, the entire process is, is I think, really enjoyable, but it's, it's always nice to have a sense of completion. I was at a translation discussion a couple of years ago. I, I think it was, it was shortly after the Olympics, and it occurred to me that my, I proposed a metaphor that came to me when, during the, at the event, that for me, translating is like the pursuit event and, and, and cycling, where... It's, it's this really bizarre event where the, the cyclists start and do like 10 laps, but super slow. And they're led by a, a motorcycle or a pacing motorcycle, and they're not allowed to pass the motorcycle. So it's like super, super, super slow. And then the I think the last two laps or something like that, the, the pacing motorcycle falls away. And then they do an all-out sprint to the end. And, and my translations, I think, are often like that. I'll, take, I'll spend the first several months working very, very slowly and just sort of getting a feel for you know, what kind of language I, I want to use and then how it's going to sound, how it's, how it's going to fit together and making some you know basic translational choices. And then once I get into it and the deadline starts approaching, then the last last month or two is often quite frenzied. A large portion or the bulk of the translation is done at kind of in the la in the final period. It's in some ways easier to, to do it kind of quickly and sort of around the clock but I do try to, when I'm doing a project, I do try to put like an hour or two a day into it. How do you balance your different identities as scholar and also as a translator? Because you also need to teach and you also need to do research at the same time. So how do you manage this whole different identities at the same time? Well, they're not really that different, right? I mean, they're, they're synergistic. I, I do translate something that is related to my, my research and my teaching. So, I mean, it would be different if I did, I don't know, computer science and then translate on the side or or like Ken Liu, who does do computer science, uh, is a programmer and also a lawyer and then and, and then translates that because there's less less overlap um, between his different um, careers. But for me, yeah, I mean, aside from that synergy, it's also, it's hard to do scholarly work around the clock. And I am not in a position where I don't 
we're fortunately need to teach around the clock. So, so there's, there's always like extra time. It's often nice to have a change of pace where you can go from one type of work to another. I mean, for research, it comes in bits and flows, right? So, you know, either I have an idea and I can sort of work through it, or I, I often spend time trying to figure out how I want to approach something. And it's nice to have the, tra- the translation where you can sort of, you know, plop down at any time and, and basically spend an hour working at, at it. You don't really need to wait for, you know, inspiration to come or, or whatever. Yeah, that's very true. And then I think the next question is usually a question to ask a translator because I think it must have happened at some point. So what are the challenges of translating Yelianko's fictions? Do you think it's the language? And is there any other problem? And also, do you feel any difference between translating his essays and also fictions if we talk about genres? I mean, I think that every work has its own challenges, right? I mean, and this is true of works by different authors, but even um, works by the same author. I, I think every work ha- presents a unique set of challenges. And this is particularly true of Yelinka because each of his works kind of adopts a different language, um, a different voice, and to figure out exactly how to render that voice. I mean, like the biblical language and in, in, in the four books or the Maoist revolutionary language and also all the sort of embedded illusions in Hard Like Water. So so that's, that's one thing is just um, trying to I mean, there, there are other authors, I think, that have a greater degree of, of continuity in terms of the, the voice and also the structure of the each of his novels has a very different structure. I mean, he's very formally inventive. And so figuring out how to capture that or replicate that, sometimes it, there's there are translational issues and even at the level of how to render the structure. So one thing that I've talked about in other contexts that I think is kind of one of the larger, more interesting challenges for a translator is not so much how to move between one language and another, the target language and the source language, or the source language and the target language, but rather how to capture these linguistic shifts or these linguistic gaps within the the source language itself or within the source text itself. So for instance, the dialect is not so much an issue. Because, I mean, you know, he uses dialect in all of his books. And, and you know, if you're translating it, then you just sort of treated i mean that's the source language right and so you don't necessarily need to mark it as dialect unless it's marked as dialect within the the source text itself and and this is done most explicitly in Lennon's kisses where the novel is full of footnotes that the author has inserted where he explains words and phrases that are peculiar to either the region or to the town in, in question and then the pre- presumption is that other chinese readers will not necessarily be familiar with these words and phrases. Some of them are, are invented, some of them are actual dialect terms that are common in the region, but are not necessarily well known outside of the region. So that was an interesting challenge for that first book was how to, to capture that difference between sort of the more standard Mandarin of the overall narration and then these words and phrases that are marked as being different within the text itself. Is there anything to add for the genre thing? You know, a, a lot of his essays stem out of discussions of its fiction. So so there's kind of a continuity between the two. Sometimes I just feel it might be easier to translate essays than fictions because you, you need to capture the whole structure of the fiction. But then for the essay, you just kind of go with the rhythm of the speech or the essay itself. And then you don't have to have this overall kind of framework to figure out like, 
what's the tone there? What's the way to express things? And then who are the characters? That kind of thing. It's, that's what I was imagining when I was reading Discovering Fiction and Hard Like Water. I, as a reader, I feel that way, but I'm not super sure if as a translator, you also feel the same way. No, he has a very, um, I mean, his essays, I think, have a very literary style. And he writes, as in Discovering Fiction, they're essays about fiction, but he writes them in a, in a very, I think, a, a kind of a creative sense. And so there, there are all these kind of really interesting, elaborate metaphors. And, and plus, I mean, his description of his own reading process is, I think, very, very writerly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the sense that the essays you're just translating for content and then the fiction that you're focusing more on issues of, of tonality and, and word choice and sort of literary structure. For me, that that's not the case. I mean, I, I think that there, there isn't that much of a difference between the... I mean, I, I read the essays as not so much kind of nonfiction, but rather kind of a fictional reflection on the reading of fiction. And for that matter, Three Brothers is nonfiction as well. I mean, it's a memoir, but it's it's written in a in a very writerly way. So already with Three Brothers, Oyu Fubei, in principle, you have that movement away from fiction to to nonfiction. But it's apart from the fact that it's based on his family and his own background, there are parts of it that that are not radically distinct, uh, different from what you would find in some of his fictional works. And then conversely, the, the same applies too. That in his fictional works, there are a lot of direct or indirect reflections on modern or contemporary social phenomena. There are a lot of sort of meta fictional turns where he talks about the writing of fiction itself. So yeah, I don't think that there's a, a fundamental difference between one and one and the other. Now let's come to the more recent translations of Yan Liang Ke. So first, Heart Like Water. So you actually touched upon this already in the earlier questions, but I'm really curious how you deal with the revolutionary languages and also the erotic descriptions in your translation, because for me as a bilingual reader, when I was reading the Chinese version, all those revolutionary languages are just too familiar in all kinds of senses. And then the erotic descriptions can be a little bit too much for me to bear as a female reader. But then when I go into your English translation for those revolutionary languages, I feel, I still feel the sense of familiarity and somehow for the erotic descriptions, I feel easier to digest. So I'm wondering, you as a translator, how you, do you tackle that kind of revolutionary languages and erotic descriptions? Well, with the revolutionary language, part of the challenge is that, as you mentioned, that he's drawing on a kind of a discourse that's very familiar to particularly mainland Chinese readers from a particular, well, probably all mainland Chinese readers, but particularly ones that are of a certain age and um, were young enough to either have lived through that period or... But, it, but a lot of the language still circulates. And in English, some of that is still present. And some of it will be relatively familiar to readers who don't know Chinese, but have an interest in China. I mean, like, like revolution is not a dinner party. It, it's something that, that, that is a relatively easy lift. But a lot of the more detailed allusions that he's drawing on are ones that an English-only reader would would be completely unfamiliar with. So what I did there, and I explained in the um, the translator's note, is initially for some of the allusions, and th this includes not only sort of allusions to revolutionary language, but also to poetry, drama, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, where he's either quoting or paraphrasing lines that would be very recognizable to Chinese readers. I put, I put it in italics, and this is italics that is not present in the original Chinese, just to give the reader a sense that you're kind of shifting from the narrative to this either quote or power quote of you know very familiar phrases um, in Chinese. But then as I get further into the novel, I deliberately sort of include the, the italics less and less and, and eventually sort of drop them more or less completely with the, under the assumption that the, the reader, after a certain point, has will have already gotten the, a feel for the, this kind of um, intersplicing of narrative and of quotes or power quotes. And then for the revolutionary language, the specific, well, also for the poetry and drama, but um, the specific question of the revolutionary language, when there is an existing um, English translation or a relatively familiar English translation, I did try to draw from that. Um, some of the stuff that he's quoting or paraphrasing doesn't really have a standard English translation, in which case I just came up with one but i did try to um use relatively familiar versions of, of some of the stuff that he's he's alluding to if, if it was available and then with respect to the sex or the erotic descriptions it's a really quirky way of describing sex and desire and and so i tried to preserve that that, that quirkiness uh, i mean what he's trying to do two things is one is is trying to reflect satirically on sex and desire but then secondly is is trying to use this as a basis for a a similar satirical description of revolutionary fervor right so it's not sex for sex's sake although it partially is i think uh, sort of a critique or commentary on sort of libidinous excitement and energy but uh, but equally importantly it's it's using sex as a way of offering a commentary on this this kind of overblown sort of revolutionary investment that he's arguing was sort of a characteristic of, of, of that particular period, the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, some of the descriptions are fairly direct and graphic, but I think that the, the fact that he presents them in a very quirky way, I, I think already kind of blunts their force as straight erotica but i realize everyone's reading sensibilities uh differ so yeah i remember this is a question that first proposed in that particular session to discuss how like water when yelenko joined through zoom and then i i really feel like as a female reader it's it's actually very hard to to read all through it because i will feel then What's really the female protagonist's idea? I, I, I just feel there's a male author projecting his fantasy over the female protagonist. That's, that's my feeling when I was reading the Chinese version. But then when I was reading your translation, I feel that kind of sense somehow just deemed. I don't know why, but <laughs> that's my feeling of reading that anyway. As I said, I mean, you know, everyone's reading sensibilities will differ so i, I you know I, yeah i can say that, that that one reading is a more correct one than another but I, I do feel that a even just on a surface reading it's clear that there's that that there's an element of parody and satire to to the, to the descriptions of of to the erotic descriptions from the very beginning that itself sort of invites the reader to reflect on how this is maybe not necessarily a sort of transparent projection, which I think is the word that you use, but rather that's being used for a specific purpose, right? I mean, just to take a common example, right? I mean, when we read something like Lolita, 
which also runs uh, rubs some some people the wrong way. But the the first reaction to reading Lolita, which was banned, of course, but um, is currently is not to say, oh well, this is Novikov entertaining his his fantasies of having sex with children, right? I mean, that's that that maybe was like a talking point early on, and certainly you know there there are groups that are actually trying to ban lots of books now. But uh, but in terms of sort of the standard literary discussions of the novel, that's not really the first or even the second or third place that people go. And instead, they, they realize it's being used for that, that this that the topic is being used for a, a literary purpose. And it's not simply Novikov, you know, uh, 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 sharing with us his, his secret fantasies. So and then for for Hard Like Water, I, I think that, yeah, as I said, I mean, from the very beginning, the very first description of the sort of um, eroticized scene where her the, the protagonist's breasts are described as bunnies trying to leap out of her her shirt and, and this and that. I mean, it's already, and then the, the detailed description of her toes, et cetera, et cetera, seems to be flagging itself as satire. And then and then very quickly, you see the, the relationship between this kind of blind erotic investment and it's mutual too right i mean that that you know he's the male protagonist is invested in this female protagonist and then and, and vice versa uh, although there's less description of the male body versus the female body because it's told from the male protagonist's perspective but you see that there's a clear attempt to establish a parallel between that kind of eroticized investment and the kind of as i said the revolutionary fervor that is also presented in a satirical product way but as yanika mentioned in the event that you're referring to the book form that you're referring to and as he's mentioned in many other contexts too the, the reality itself was satirical that he lived through this period and and he argues that what he's putting in is is only a lightly fictionalized version of true events that or almost stranger than fiction. And, and he makes the same argument about contemporary China as well, that the bizarreness and absurdity of, of contemporary China is almost more bizarre and more absurd than anything that even a good novelist could come up with out of their, their, their own imagination. So I think what you just said linked very well to our next discussion of the most recent translation, I mean, most recent published translation of Yan Lianke, Discovering Fiction. So this is really an essay collection of his literary criticism. And then one of the major ideas, I think, is the mytho-realism. So first, what's mytho-realism, according to Yan Lianke? And then how do you feel it actually relates to his fictional works well, in discovering fiction, he, he kind of traces a, a development of several different approaches to literary realism in China and the West. And he kind of divides them up into four different types of causality that underlie the forms that the realism takes. The first is, is what he calls full causality, which he associates with what we might think of as, as classical 19th century realism, where there's the expectation that the causal order underlying the text is is clear and comprehensible the the next stage that he identifies is what he calls uh, zero causality which corresponds to what we would probably call modernism um and and for this the his archetypal example is kafka's the metamorphosis where the author makes absolutely no no attempt to explain why or how gregor samsa woke up one day as a as a bug i mean like a lot of science fiction, you have strange things happen, but there's often an attempt to offer an explanation. But in, in The Metamorphosis and other sort of modernist works that were, were inspired by it, 
there's no attempt to even offer that kind of causal explanation, right? They just sort of start with this absurd premise and, and move forward. And then the the third is what he calls partial causality, which is what we would frequently associate with with magical realism, where it's something where you have a lot of elements that are kind of absurd, but then there's enough sort of causal elements that they kind of make sense. But they're, so they're, it, unlike the mo- zero causality of modernism, they don't just sort of skip over the causal explanation, but also unlike the, the full causality of classical 19th century realism, there's no attempt to sort of make everything completely comprehensible. So there'd be an underpinning or kind of a causal logic that gives the veneer of you know something making sense but it still has many absurdist elements and then the fourth one is what he associates with what he calls mytho-realism and he describes this as as inner causality it relies on a kind of causal order that is not directly based on kind of the the direct outward causality that we typically observe in the world around us right like if you drop a glass, it breaks or something like that. Um, but rather that there's an inner logic that drives the this or that structures the 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 social order. And he's trying to use his his fiction to describe that inner logic, that inner order, that inner structure, which is uh why you have these seemingly absurd elements that then he he says are reflecting or offering insight into some kind of a inner truth of Chinese society or of society itself, which, you know, go back to Hard Like Water. Um, I, I think that that's, I mean, Hard Like Water is a novel that he wrote before he started talking about mytho-realism, but, but I think it, it shares some elements with it and the the kind of almost absurd premise of a lot of, you know, including the erotic description and then some of the plot lines. I think he would argue that the point is not the surface description or the surface plot line itself, but rather the kind of underlying reality that's reflecting on which it's reflecting, which is in this case, trying to say something about the revolutionary obsession and fervor during that that characterized the the cultural revolution period, what was driving it and, and maintaining it. So yes, yeah, so that's that's the the way that he explains myth of realism and discovering fiction. And this is something that he says is a narrative logic that characterizes a lot of his recent works, but it's also one, you know, elements of it can be found in other works by Chinese authors, contemporary Chinese authors, and also by more traditional authors as well. And he cites a number of examples in detail. Mm -hmm. So after discuss this two books in some details, let's come back to some meta question again. So if we follow Walter Benjamin, how would you describe your task as a translator? Why do you translate? <laughs> Why do I translate? Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it is kind of a service to the field. There are a lot of people that are able to do translations and a lot of people that are able to do them well. So it's not like I'm the only person that can be doing it. But I do have the kind of flexibility of, of you know, having a salary job and being able to do things that, I mean, they, they pay or a lot, a lot of the translations, some of them. I don't take get anything for them, but the ones that are published with commercial presses, you know, they they do give me a an honorarium um, or royalties or whatever. But it's not huge. I mean, it'd be really hard to support myself on on just translation alone. So these are valuable works of fiction that I think 
are of interest to an English language public. So that's part of the reason I, I do it. The other part is, is I mean, I, I translate authors in works that I'm interested in. And it's going back to one of your earlier questions. It, it's it always um, pleasurable, I guess, or, not, or you know, fun to finish a project and to see it actually be in print and to see other people taking interest in it. So that's that's another reason why I do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think you can really give a so-called afterlife to a particular literary work through translation? Or do you think that way? An afterlife? Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind. I mean, I mean, certainly translations allow more people to read works. You know, the translation too is 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 kind of a, a creative process in its own right. I mean, I would like to see this as sort of an extension of the creative process. I mean, I think it's very nice that Yelinka has had a kind of a, a consistency. I mean, apart from the first two novels, as you mentioned, were translated by other people that we've been working together for on, on, on all the, the rest of the novels, which allows us to have a kind of a continuity, right? Um, and even though each of his novels is written in a different voice, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think that the fact that I've been, the translator for each of them allows a certain kind of internal coherence within the the, the overall oeuvre. And this is uh, further reinforced by the fact that he's had the same publisher, English language publishers for for all of, all of the books. And then the publisher also, you know, um, are, are very conscientious and, and proactive and do a fair amount uh, to further reinforce the kind of consistency of tone. So that's different from, say, someone like uh, Jia Pinghua, who has in recent years um, had a flurry. For a long time, he was radically under-translated into English. For a long time, there's only one novel of his that was available, um, Turbulence. In the past, I guess, three, four or five years, his new agents in China have, have been very aggressive in trying to get his works translated. But the the disadvantage is that they've gone to a whole bunch of different translators. I, I did one novel, but there are several English language translators that are working more or less simultaneously and with no direct contact with one another. And then plus the books are coming out from all sorts of different presses, many of which are are fairly minor presses. So th- there isn't that that kind of institutional foundation or the that kind of consistency across the, the earth for his uh, translator, which I think is, is kind of unfortunate. I, I really want to add another question following your first point earlier, which is really about the position of translation in our academic career. It seems that translation is not so highly valued as, say, scholarly works. And from a very practical point of view, translation seems not to be so highly valued as scholarly works for promotion. So what do you think of the statements? Well, you're stating this as a fact, but I'm not sure it's true. I mean, I mean, oh, okay. I, I mean you're making characterizations as though they were sort of straightforward and, and uncontroversial. And, and I, I actually don't think that that's true. And, and it's also hard to make a, a broad generalization. I mean, there, there, there are several things to, to be said. One is uh, there's actually an ongoing discussion within the field and within academia of how to treat translations and uh, different departments, different individuals, different universities are taking somewhat different decisions or perspectives. But I, I would say that there are many people in the field who are in charge of reviewing scholars for tenure and making tenure decisions and stuff like that, that 
would not agree with the assertions that you just made at all. So this is something that this is not a new set of questions, and, and they're, they're questions that are receiving a lot of attention. Our department here at Duke a few years ago was asked by the administration to submit a statement of what we feel are sort of expectations for faculty review and promotion, reappointment, and we collectively and very explicitly underscored translation as um, a key form of academic work or academic production. And in fact, we specified, when we talked about sort of what you could call scholarly research, I forget exactly what we called it. We, we talked about editing and we talked about translation as sort of three different forms uh, of scholarly output that faculty in our department often engage in. And we actually put, strategically, we placed uh, translation ahead of editing, just the foreground, the fact that, that we feel that's important. I'm frequently asked to, to review tenure and promotion cases from scholars at other departments and, and at other universities. And of course, I mean, given my background, I, I always um, make a point, uh, you know, if they have worked as trans, you know, for, in translation um, to, to foreground that. And often I get instructions from the department or, or the university that's conducting the review process, drawing attention to that fact, right? I mean, sort of preemptively mentioning that part of what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So, and then MLA has also, a number of years ago, has, has published a set of recommended guidelines on how departments in modern languages and literature fields might treat translation. I mean, I don't fully agree with those recommendations because they, they, they kind of like emphasize or prioritize translations with a lot of sort of scholarly scaffolding, like um, footnotes and commentaries and stuff, which doesn't really work well, I think, for when you're translating modern fiction, right? Because you, I, I mean, I make a point of never adding footnotes to any of the novels I translate, because I think that takes away from, that changes the reading experience. But there, there are certain kinds of translation that part of the effort of the translating is adding all this sort of scaffolding, all this sort of identifying references and stuff like that. So anyway, so just to say that, that the question of you know, the, the position of translation or the status of translation for scholars in our field is something that has been actively discussed for many years now. And many departments, many institutions, many individuals feel that it's a really important part of a scholar's a creative output. I, I would say, though, that I think what's really important is if one is doing translation to how you incorporate that into your narrative, right? Because uh, I certainly... You know, there, there's a lot of translation that is done by non-scholars, and you certainly would not want to just take all translators and, and give them tenure. Um, and there's also, you know, a, a lot of fields where the translational work has no real direct bearing on what the scholar is doing, right? So in those cases, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, working in particle physics or whatever, and then you translate, I don't know, uh, Japanese novels or something, then it makes sense that that would not really count towards tenure. But if you work on modern Chinese literature and part of your work is translating in the field, you know, within the very field in, in which you're uh, also a scholar, then it seems really weird and bizarre for that not to be part of sort of the larger considerations for faculty promotion. In our field, in sort of the and talking about the North American Academy, right? Um, if you're working in in the humanities and you know more specifically in, in a literary field, but humanities in general, the sine qua non, you know, the standard 
expectation for a lot of departments and universities, um, particularly at R1 universities, is to have a a scholarly monograph from a reputable academic press. You know, I mean, if you're at a liberal arts college or, um, I mean, you know, there, there's there's some institutions where that place a higher priority on teaching, where even the monograph is is not necessarily expected. But in in many places, you know, at least one monograph, and you know, ideally two for the most competitive universities, is is kind of the basic expe- expectation. So yeah, so if you're going to say that 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 scholarship is is highly ranked, then yeah, but at the level of the, the monograph, right? Um, but then you know, typically expected to have. A body of additional work in addition to that, and I I don't think that it necessarily goes without saying. I don't think it's necessarily true that you know once you move away from the the monograph, that pure scholarship would take precedence over translation. And 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 as I mentioned earlier, there's also editing that is I think a really important and legitimate sort of form of scholarly productivity. And and there you know it just comes down to the I mean how you balance them. Is, is really going to depend on sort of the sensibilities of the department and of the people doing the, the evaluation. And, and this will differ from institution to institution, but also, and, and more importantly, it depends on, on how the, the scholar, what kind of narrative the scholar, the scholar creates, right? I mean, if the scholar is able to argue that, that in their particular case, that the translational work is of, you know, is, 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 is very important um, and, and is in, integrally related to their larger academic interests, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be treated as equally important or even more important than some of the non-monograph uh, scholarship, right? I mean, so, you know, if you're like comparing, I don't know, if, if someone has, say, five prestigious translations, some of which have, you know, won prizes or, you know, uh, been considered for prizes versus five articles in relatively unknown scholarly journals. I mean, there's no reason why it would be taken more positively than the former, right? So. Yeah, I actually really appreciate all this because I value myself as a scholar equally as a translator, and I really enjoy translating things as well. So again, I I really appreciate all this and somehow makes me relieved. But now let's come to the usual last question that we asked. So what's your next translation project? Well, I have two books that are complete and under contract and both will be going into production soon. Um, I mean, still, in one case, I'm still doing some revisions to the introduction and the other one, I think it still needs to go through the final set of reviews. One is another collection of, of Yanka's essays. And this is based on 12 lectures that he gave when he visited the U.S. When I invited him to North America um, after when the English translation of, of Shouhua, Linnet's Kisses, was released. And um, he I arranged you know, visits at 12 different universities. He prepared different lectures for each university, to my surprise, and then published a Chinese version in Taiwan later that year. And, and we've been trying to get permission to publish an English language version for a number of years now, but his um, agent was initially reluctant that she wanted to focus on his fiction. And then finally we got permission to, from the agent who needs to prove it to, um, to do these two nonfiction collections, discovering fiction. And then the other one, which I think we're going to call silent and gasping, but we haven't, I don't think that the English title has been finalized yet, um, are both being published by Duke. So that's, that's one thing that is already done, but it's forthcoming. 
Um, and then the other is a translation of a novel by the Malaysian Chinese author Zhang Guixing, Elephant Herd, that is also complete and is under contract with uh, Columbia University Press. And so that's something else that is complete but forthcoming. And then beyond that, I have for translations, I agreed to translate some books by a couple of scholars in both China and in Taiwan, but have gotten very sidetracked with with other things. Um, and so those are those are overdue, but I'd like to to get back and do those. So excited to hear, especially Zhang Weijing's works. It's another whole round that we can discuss for another episode. So thank you again for accepting this invitation and for all these great ideas about translation. And I hope to see you again. Thanks for having me.